I witnessed something this week that I <laughs> couldn't believe actually happened. Uh, before the leaders of our nation, an ordained minister got up, prayed, not to our Lord Jesus Christ, but to any number of pagan deities, and then closed his prayer with amen and a women. God have mercy on our idolatries, as well as our foolishness. Uh, and then, if it couldn't get any dumber, and it always can, the immediate reaction on the news was how terribly, terribly insensitive of him to close his prayer with only two genders. <laughs> Twenty twenty one. And if that craziness wasn't crazy enough for you, then of course you observed on the news all that happened this week and it's exhausting. The idolatry is exhausting, the foolishness is exhausting, the news is exhausting, Washington is exhausting. And so wearied by the whole of it. I thought, uh, I'll not say a thing. And uh, a person that I deeply admire, who is at a very well-respected theological institution, uh, made this claim this week, which is, pastors, you have the obligation to speak of this on Sunday. If you don't, you are uh, missing your opportunity, and uh, this is ministerial negligence. Um, and so you may wonder, well, what has he got to say? I, I say only this. Let me offer this four personal resolves to you as I thought about this this week. This is where my heart is going into seasons like the one that we find ourselves. Four resolves. First, as important as, as it is for believers to engage the issues of the day, we cannot be consumed by them. So first, I will not advocate for the fulfillment of the United States Constitution with greater energy than I give to the fulfillment of the Word of God. I will not lend my hopes, secondly, I will not lend my hopes and enthusiasms to any man above Jesus Christ. Thirdly, I will not speak to others of political affairs more than I speak to them of spiritual affairs, and I'll take all of my uncertainties first to the Lord in prayer. And fourth and finally, I will not use my pulpit as a springboard to respond reactively to every issue of today, but will instead point others to Jesus Christ and his work across the ages. If you want to know why we don't talk about politics more, it's because I hold those resolves dear. And to that end, Hebrews chapter 10. Because there will be no greater place for us to examine the work and person of Jesus Christ than Hebrews chapter 10. We have not been in Hebrews since the middle of March. Enough time has passed. We make our way back. The passage that we're in this morning starts in verse chapter 19. It's a single paragraph. And as is the custom of our author, Barnabas, or whoever it might be, it's a single complicated paragraph extraordinarily nuanced sentence in the Greek New Testament. 
Starting in verse 19 through verse 25, this is what we find from our author here in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. We pray that you would help us in this somewhat dense paragraph to understand what we find there. But more so, we pray that you would transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit in the reading and examination of your word. So that we, be, <clears throat> we may be more like Jesus Christ. And we may honor and glorify you for what he's done. Namely, by his death it is resurrection. And it's in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. This paragraph, 19 to 25 in Hebrews chapter 10, like I said, is a single sentence. It divides fairly evenly into two different parts. So if you look again at that paragraph, and if uh, you are, as I am, now newly birthed into the kind of person who writes in your Bible then you may want to make a little division marker there between verses 19, 20, 21, that's our first little section, and 22, 23, 24, 25. There are really two parts of the passage that we're looking at here. The very first part, and you may be wondering, man, we've not been in Hebrews since the middle of March. How come we're not getting a great recap to bring us up to speed because that was months ago and it feels like years ago. And man, can we use a, a great refresher on the core principles and theological emphases of the book of Hebrews? Conveniently, Barnabas gives us that in this paragraph. So we don't need to backtrack because he's engineered to hear for us. Starting in verses 19, 20, and 21, we get this. And it's an examination of what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing. It's all about the work of Jesus. So in this very first section, that's what you'll see. What has Jesus been doing? And what is he doing now? Section number one, 19, 20, 21. In 22, 23, 24, 25, that second section, we find this. How then, based on what Jesus has done, are we equipped to have an enduring faith? And you'll see on the screen in front of you, this is our motif moving through the rest of the book of Hebrews. It's about an enduring faith, a faith that perseveres, a faith that will carry you through to the very end. Christians, throughout all the ages, in all places, in all circumstances, who have made it to the end have this defining characteristic in common. They had an unwavering enduring, persevering faith. So we're going to see in the first section what Jesus has done. We're going to see in the second section how based on what Jesus has done now, we have been gifted in enduring faith. And in fact, that's our big idea this morning. Because of the work of Jesus, believers can enjoy a lifetime of enduring faith. Let's take a look again 
at what Jesus has done. Starting in verse 19. Therefore, our great little conjunction here connecting this passage to everything that's come before. That great examination of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is greater than all the other priests. He is greater than all the other sacrifices. He is greater than all the other places where we go to meet God. Because of that... Therefore, brothers and brothers and sisters, I think implied here, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. 19 and 21, what Jesus has done for us in the past. Verse 20, well, 21, excuse me, we'll talk about what he's doing presently. Let's talk about briefly what he's done here in the past. He calls out to them in the vocative tense here. He's speaking to them as family, brothers and sisters. He hasn't spoken to them this tenderly since chapter 3. I think it's verses uh, 1 and 2, 10 and 12, something like that. He says we have confidence. We have confidence. It's a fascinating Greek term that's translated there, parousia, We are confident. We are bold. It occurs four times in the book of Hebrews. You'll want to jot these down. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. We speak of the boldness with which we can approach our God based on the defining work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 3, 6. Hebrews 4, 16. Of course, you remember the context of that passage about the illumination of the word of God. 10, chapter 19. 10, 19 which is where we are this morning. We'll see it again next week in 1035. Only used four times in the entirety of this passage. He says we can come boldly. We can come confidently. We can come with some measure of confidence before where? Before the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The holy places is where God is. Think about how this entire book has been structured to this point. If you're a believer in the Old Testament, you're a person of faith in the Old Testament, you're uh, Moses or Aaron or one of the Levitical priests or David or Solomon or whoever it might be, you went to worship maybe at the tabernacle or, or even greater at the temple. And what did you find there? Well, there was an outer court where you could come and offer sacrifices and then there was the temple proper where only the priests could go and they were able to offer certain sacrifices inside and certain offerings to God. But then there was the Holy of Holies. This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. This is the place where the glory of God resided and there was a curtain, we know, that separated the unholy people from the very holy God. And it was not only multiple inches thick, it was 30 feet high. It weighed thousands of pounds. And the angels, the seraphim woven into the cloth of that curtain reminded you of this. You are not worthy. And because you are not worthy, because you're unholy, because you're unrighteous, stay away. This is as close as you get. Do not be confident about approaching this holy place. Do not march boldly to the throne of God. You're not welcome here because he's holy and you have not yet been made holy. 
But because of the work of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, because of his blood, what do we find here? You may now have confidence to enter the holy places. Bring me straight to God. How dare you? I dare, based on my confidence and the effectiveness of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his blood shed for me. I have been washed. I have been made new. I stand at the foot of the cross redeemed, regenerated by the spirit of Christ. Can I go to him directly because of what Jesus Christ has done for me? In the Old Testament, the sinful people were cut off from a holy God. In the New Testament, they're conjoined to God, brought near to him by Jesus' sacrifice. And look how this sacrifice is described. By the new and living way that he opened for us. That's how Jesus' blood is described. New and living. New. This is a fascinating term, prosveton. New. Only time it's used anywhere in the New Testament, right? Uh, what do they call that? A hopox legomena? Some Greek nerd. Help me out there. Only occurs once in the entirety of the New Testament text. It has a very specific use in the ancient Near Eastern world, in the Greco-Roman world. It usually means something like freshly killed. Uh, Corey Conklin and others have set up stands back here in the woods and they've shot deer throughout deer hunting season. And from the moment that bullet leaves his rifle and enters that animal, that animal is now freshly killed. This is the new sacrifice. In contrast, you might find, to the priests who went into the temple and offered sacrifice after sacrifice, there is a grating redundancy to the work of the priests. That day after day, and month after month, and year after year, and century after century, there were millions of sacrifices that were brought to the temple in recognition of the sins of the people. Old, repetitive, again and again and again. But this sacrifice we saw earlier in Hebrews chapter 9 has been offered how often? Once, freshly killed, for all time. This is how we get close to God. This is what the author is arguing here. We can have confidence by the blood of Jesus. It's a new sacrifice. It's also a living sacrifice. Isn't that a weird thing to say? A living sacrifice? What do you mean that it's alive? In contrast to the priest who did the same thing over and over again, this one is living. It seems to cover this phrase, both his death and his resurrection. Uh, Go ahead and turn over to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. I want you to see how John, John the Apostle, John the Revelator, speaks of Jesus in chapter 1, starting in verse 17. He does this something like six times in the first five chapters of the book of Revelation. We speak of the sacrifice of Jesus, right? In chapter 4, chapter 5, who is worthy to open the seal? It was only the Lamb who has offered himself. Chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the, what? The living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and the Hades. 
He'll repeat that almost verbatim in chapter 5, uh, somewhere around verse 4. I am alive. I died. But I hold the keys to death in Hades. So it's not all that weird when we think about all that Jesus has done, not only his death, but also his resurrection, to say that we have a sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice? It's both new and living. It's foolishness to the world, but wisdom to those who follow Jesus Christ. For without a living sacrifice, we have a sacrifice that doesn't work at all. If he does not live, neither do we. But he is alive, so we have new life through Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about how it's described here. Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter this by the blood of Jesus, this new and living sacrifice that he opened for us. And he's going to borrow on this imagery from the Old Testament, from this curtain. Now, you remember from Matthew 27 and Mark 15 and Luke 23, you remember that at the moment of Jesus' death, that great curtain that separated unholy people from a holy God and the great earthquake that overtook Jerusalem, that curtain was torn in two. The physical curtain that was actually in a physical building was torn in two. But I want you to see how the author here borrows that imagery to talk about what Jesus has done. Because it's raw and it's visceral and it's agonizing and it's also the most beautiful thing that's ever happened to any believer in any moment in history through he has opened for us this way through the curtain that is his flesh one New Testament scholar will say this through his flesh in a bold shift the writer changes from a spatial phrase that's Christ opened the way through the curtain into the inner sanctuary, a spatial phrase, to an instrumental phrase. He did this, that is, by means of his flesh in sacrifice of himself. Associating the two in an allusion to the splitting of the curtain in the temple from top to bottom, Jesus as the curtain was split. So Christ's body is broken for us. Why? To give us access into the presence of God himself. Jesus not only rents the curtain for us, he is, in a sense, the curtain. He is the curtain. This is why we can come boldly and confidently into the holy places where God is. This is what Jesus has done. He also talks here in verse 21 about what Jesus is doing. See, uh, and since not only has he offered the sacrifice by his blood to let us draw confidently to the holy places, and since we have, present tense, a great priest over the house of God. Now, uh, this is something that I think is hard for most evangelicals to consider. We speak often of what Jesus has already done. And that makes sense because the Bible spends an awful lot of time talking about what Jesus has done. And, And just as a community of evangelicals in the 21st century, we speak an awful lot about what Jesus will do, what he has done in the past, what he will do in the future. But what we don't often talk about, and it's a tragedy for the church, the evangelical church in this particular time in history, we don't often talk about what he is doing now. So here is our priest. He is here now. 
And where does he work? He works in the house of God. Verse 21, we see it very clearly, right? Uh, and he has torn this curtain since we have a great priest who is over the house. And go, well, where is the house of God? Uh, do we mean that Jesus is operating somehow in the temple in Jerusalem or there on the temple mount or on the western wall where people roll up their prayers and stick them into the cracks? Do we mean, as some have posited through the ages, that by the house of God we mean that it's this building right here? That we have built, when Davenport was hired to build this building in 1999, a new house for God. And this is why we should all be wearing ties on Sunday morning, why the kids aren't allowed to run in the sanctuary, because it's God's house, right? Well, it's a special building, but I don't think that's what our author is talking about here in this verse. Go ahead and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 2, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2. Just a couple of pages over. 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, look at verse 4, 1 Peter chapter 2 there. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Who is the cornerstone of this house of God? Described by Peter here in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's Jesus. You're allowed to give that Sunday school answer. That's right. Who is the cornerstone? Sunday school answer. Jesus. Right? And who are the other stones that are built upon the cornerstone to construct the house of God? We are. Every Jew who is drawn by the grace of Jesus into following him, every Gentile who by faith has made his way before the throne of Jesus Christ, his Savior. In all of history, this great mass of people, billions who worship Jesus Christ, this is the house of God. He's not a priest who rules over a tent. He's not a ruler who manifests himself in a particular building over and over again. But here is our Savior who rules in the hearts of every Jew and Gentile chosen by God. And Jesus' work in keeping our home is divinely perfect, more constant than our sin and our failings, more frequent and forceful than the devil's accusations, is the work of Jesus Christ, our intercessor and priest. We make this mistake earlier on in this chapter of thinking about the work that Jesus Christ has done in being a sacrifice for us because there's this great illustration of how the priests stand daily. They stand, they make the sacrifice. They stand, they make another sacrifice. They stand, they make another sacrifice. They never get to sit down. And the author of Hebrews says, in a great recognition of the contrast between how the priests used to work and how Jesus as our great high priest now works, he says he offered one sacrifice for all time and so he sat down. Well, that's a beautiful truth about the reality of the sufficiency one time for all time of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But don't think for a minute just because our author has reminded us that Jesus was able to sit down, that Jesus is somehow in heaven waiting, doing nothing until he comes again.
interceding for his people. And finally, the soundboard is causing some kind of weird deal. <laughs> Do I need to change a battery or something? Or are we here now? Well, as we figure that out, let's go ahead and look at the second half of the passage. If the first half of the passage was primarily about what Jesus Christ has done and is doing, the work of Jesus Christ, the second half of this passage is about how Jesus' work equips the believer to possess an enduring faith. Hold on momentarily. Now, are we getting any juice now? Can you hear me now? Let's take a look at verse 22. Based on what Jesus has done, and here's how this second half is constructed, you're going to find three hortatory subjunctives here. That is, three let us statements. Based on what Jesus has done, because we have access through the person of Jesus Christ, because we are able to come confidently and boldly, because we have this new relationship where we're allowed now to be close to God, because of that new reality, three things he tells us to do, right? And every time you see let us, just make a little note there because this is what we're being told to do. Let us, verse 22, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's the first thing? Let us draw near. Let us draw near. Draw near to what? Wrong question. Draw near to whom? That is to God. But can we really do that? Are we allowed to do that? And I'm telling you, it is the question that every one of these Jewish believers in the Old Testament who have been observing the work of Jesus Christ, who have embraced him by faith, now here in the New Testament, would have fought every single day. Because they were told for millennia to stay away. And now they're being told to draw near. Are we allowed to draw near? Well, sure we are. Because of the work that Jesus Christ has done. We have faith, he says here, full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water. I've been beating my head against the wall for a couple of weeks, thinking about coming back here to Hebrews chapter 10 to give you a succinct, substantive definition of faith. Um, this is what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of months as we finish our study of the book of Hebrews in Enduring Faith. But what is faith? And on some level, it's this. It is confidence in God's person and promise. I mean, it's an overwhelming, unwavering, enduring confidence that if God says he has done it, is doing it, or is going to do it, that we believe that's true. It's confidence. But it's more than confidence. I think the devil is ultimately confident about what God has done, is doing, and is going to do. But it hasn't changed who he is or what he does. I think it's about more than just confidence. It's about a devotion to God that is based in that confidence. 
It's about a devotion and a strict adherence to what God has called us to do based on that confidence. So if you were looking for a definition, I would say it's devotion to God grounded in confidence in the promises of God. Now we're driving around yesterday as a family in the car and I'm working through this verbally, you know, out loud, articulating my great grand vision and Laura goes, oh yeah, uh, trust and obey, <laughs> right? <laughs> Shut up, <laughs> what do you mean? Thank you for taking all of the great literary merit that I've been la- and just summarizing it succinctly through the... Uh, yes. I trust God that when He says that He will do something, that He will actually do that thing. And more than just trusting it, I'm going to do exactly what He tells me to do in light of this confidence and that trust that I have in Him. Because it's not about my faith. It's about the object of my faith. My faith is weak. (laughs) My faith is fleeting. My faith is up and down. But God, in his character, never changes. His work is always sufficient. His sacrifice will always be enough. And he continually works as our intercessor. Now, look at, see what Jesus has done here, right? Let us draw near with the heart and full assurance of faith. Reminded here again of what Jesus has done with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Who did the sprinkling? Jesus did. Who did the washing of our bodies with pure water? Jesus did. Um, if you had a, a more time, I, I would tell you to turn to Ezekiel 36, but just write this down Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, there is a great Old Testament prophecy about the way in which God will come and sprinkle his people clean that is clearly fulfilled here by Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 10. Our bodies being washed, washed clean. Washed clean how? Washed clean in regeneration in Titus chapter 3. And uh, I'll turn there if you don't want to, but in Titus chapter 3, Uh, verse 4 but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit who has done the washing Jesus has who has done the sprinkling Jesus has who has done the work necessary in order to give us both the motive and the right and the ability to draw near to God in true hearts? Jesus has. Jesus has done that work. So first he tells us, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Secondly, he tells us, let us hold fast. Let us hold fast. 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast to what? Hold fast to our confession of hope. He is my light. He is my strength. He is my song. He is singularly my hope. Our hope is in Jesus. The term wavering there is used sometimes in the ancient Greco-Roman world of leaning. Without leaning. When we first moved to North Carolina, I was thrilled at the prospect, like an idiot, of getting to witness a hurricane. Because I had no idea. And so the first hurricane that hit was Hurricane Irene. The first one that, while we were here, that was 2011, we had just bought our house. 
And Laura says, hey, I don't know that it looks that great. We just had Annabelle at that time. She said, I'm going to go to Raleigh. I'm going to go to my dad's house. It's an hour further away from the coast. I said, fine, I'm going to stay here. Uh, me and the dog, we're going to hold down the fort, and we're going to see what happens. And sure enough, it had rained and rained and rained all week long. And so that storm came, and it was only Category 1, but the wind blew through, and we lost like half a dozen trees and busted up the roof. $12,000 in damage to the house, and thankfully Nationwide came through for us. But I remember being freaked out because there was a moment where it was pretty exciting. We're in the house, the power went out, I got a book, I'm sitting by the window, and the wind is rushing, and oh, okay, this is a new experience. And then the wind picked up a little bit, a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, and I'm sitting there in the second story of the house, and I can see the pine trees. And uh, every time a gust of wind comes through, uh, not like the maple trees and the oaks that I remember from my youth back up north, but these pine trees, man, they move, <laughs> right? I mean, they really move. And I start watching in my head, I think, uh, that, th that, that big pine tree, the front of my house, that sucker has moved 15 feet to the right when that wind comes through. And it snaps back about another 10 feet the other direction. That's a lot of movement. I don't want a treehouse up there, right? That's like going to the amusement park and riding that Viking ship. Be, I'm going to be sick <laughs> just watching it from the window. I want no part of that. It wavers. You see, it leans. Every time the wind blows, it leans this way. And it blows the other direction, it leans that way. And it's just pushed around by the wind. What the author is saying here is, hey, hold fast. Stop leaning. And the socio-cultural winds that blow through the ancient Near Eastern world, every time somebody comes along and frightens you, hold fast. Every time they tempt you to walk away from following Jesus, hold fast. Every time it seems like the grass is greener on the other side or certainly easier to live out, hold fast. That's a great, remarkable practical moment here even for us as the western world with enthusiasm and a speed that we have never seen flees from the church and rejects Jesus Christ as an antiquated notion of an ancient world as they march out from these walls with a kind of rapidity and giddiness that is baffling to those of us who hold fast hold fast and I love how it's described here for he who promised is faithful a couple of verses that I think help us there 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 24 right he is faithful intrinsic to his nature he is faithful and then of course 2 Timothy 2 13 even when we are faithless he is faithful, for he cannot, Paul says, he cannot deny himself. It's who he is in his very nature. He is faithful. Finally, not only let us draw near, let us hold fast. Finally, let us consider. Consider what? Consider what? Let us consider how to serve one another up to love and good works. Now, there are a bunch of these one another passages throughout the New Testament. I would love to do a sermon series at some time and just go through and examine all the one another passages in the New Testament. This is a fairly rare one. We have a lot of encourage one another, a lot of admonish one another. This is stir one another up. We're really good at stirring each other up to lots of different things, but not often love and good works. How do we stir each other up to love and good works? Well, it's illustrated here negatively and positively. Negatively, he says, do not neglect to meet together. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. There's an awful lot said about this verse, and I know I've preached already for a very long time, but 
this term I think is sometimes taken too lightly. It could be to uh, neglect. Uh, it could also, I think, be uh, confidently translated to leave behind, to forsake, or to desert. Now, I remember reading a story near the beginning of the time the United States moved into Afghanistan. I guess it was about 15 years ago. And there was a small unit of soldiers who were in a mountainous region there in the mountains of Afghanistan, maybe 15 or 20 of them at this little forward camp. And they had a number of soldiers. They knew the enemy was approaching from this particular way up through the valley, and they were all on the front line there. And there were two guys in the back, and their responsibility in the back was to make sure that the insurgent fighters didn't come around and flank them from, from the back and, and come in and attack them from behind. And so they had two soldiers who were posted there in the back, and their only job was just to alert the rest of the company to let them know if more soldiers, enemy combatants, were coming at them from a different angle, an unforeseen angle. And as they were in the middle of this particular firefight, they noticed that they were being shot at from both sides, but they had never heard the warning. Well, the one particular officer had been hit and he lay dying on the ground. The other one had walked away. He just left. He was in a spot where he couldn't be seen by any of his other soldiers and so he just walked away and left the entirety of the rest of the soldiers there fighting in that particular spot. Just left them all vulnerable. Half a dozen died. He deserted his people. This is what the author is saying here. Draw near, hold fast. Let us consider how do we do, how do, we do that? Well, you can't, you can't stir each other up to love and good works if you desert the people there. He's not talking about missing occasionally. He's talking about missing the assembly with some kind of regularity. It's a customary use of the verb here. It's habitual. There is some particular thing that is drawing you away over and over and over again. Now you say, I suppose you've used a pretty tense illustration there. And I have. What we're talking about in Hebrews chapter 10 isn't as bad as that. It's worse than that. That soldier acted cowardly. He abandoned the people that were closest to him in the moment when they needed him most. If you are not here to encourage one another and stir one another up to love and good works, you are like the soldier acting cowardly, abandoning the people who need you most in the time of battle when they need you most. Do you understand? He also illustrates it positively. How do we stir each other up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, and here's the contrast, but encouraging one another. Proactively, encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. And we know that that day is the day of Jesus' return. We see that same verbiage used in 1 Corinthians 3.13. It could be any moment now not specifically defined as a particular date in history by the writers of the New Testament, we know that we have the responsibility to encourage each other. 
right now because Jesus could return tomorrow. The battle is on. The enemy has laid out an assault the likes of which the church has not often seen. The darkness rises, but Christ will come again. How are you in the presence of one another, not neglecting to meet together, encouraging each other until he comes again? Especially important, vitally important as we navigate Corona. So many not able to be here with us physically will fight the challenge the evangelical church will over the next few months and years as we do what is necessary and not always easy to fight to be together to encourage one another in love and hope until Jesus comes again. Because of what Jesus has done, we can have that kind of faith, an enduring faith, the kind of faith that we're going to see illustrated next week and the weeks beyond. Let me encourage you to do this between now and our next gathering Sunday morning. Go ahead and get in your Bibles or get on that Dwell app and listen to Hebrews chapter 10 and chapter 11. Let it soak in what Jesus has done and start listening for that word faith because you're going to hear it over and over and over again. It's there more densely in Hebrews chapter 10 and 11 than anywhere else in the Bible. Listen to what he says based on what Jesus has done about then what our faith should look like or could look like. Well, this morning marks not only a return for us into Hebrews, but a return for us to the table.